Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murdered. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. How you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm okay. I'm not bad. And I wonder how everyone's doing out there in the ether. You know what? I'm sure they're fantastic. I hope they because are. they are sitting down, maybe running, I don't know, listening to Mountain Murdered. Yeah, if it's not, it's going to get greater later, y'all. <laughs> so I have to start the show by saying I am mildly obsessed with the Evelyn Boswell disappearance. Yeah, I believe you, you're just in full-blown investigative mode. I mean, you're just, you want this to, little baby to be found, right? Well, if you're not familiar with what's going on right now, last week, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation sent out an Amber Alert on this 15-month-old baby. Um, She's been missing since December. Her grandfather, her maternal grandfather, contacted Child Protective Services, who in turn called the police, and then the TBI, I believe the FBI is now involved, on this missing baby who hadn't been seen since December. And at first they thought it was December 26th, but the more they've done some digging, it seems like the 10th or 11th was like the last time anyone's seen this baby. Her mother is 19 years old and had a boyfriend who has come out and said, oh, we weren't very serious, but Social media confirms that, no, they were pretty serious. Mom has like three or four different Facebook accounts. That's always a good she's sign. She's got a new account where she's been going by her current boyfriend's last name. But, you know, they're not serious. Mom has been cooperating in the investigation, but has been giving a lot of misleading information to investigators. Her mother, a woman named Angela Boswell, who's 42, and her boyfriend, Ev I'm sorry, his name's William McLeod, were arrested in North Carolina, in Wilkes County, on some outstanding Tennessee warrants, and were found driving a car that rumored that is rumored to have belonged possibly to Evelyn's mother's boyfriend. I mean, it's just a very convoluted uh, her story. mother's boyfriend or the the baby's mother, Maggie yeah. Boswell, the nineteen-year-old boyfriend, Megan, whatever she's going by these days. I mean, it's just such a complicated story, and there's a lot of players. I've been following on social media. I've been reading news reports, and I've joined a couple of different like true crime groups. Oh my God, that are you're sort of web sleuthing this. Yeah, case. you're you're down the hole, baby. I'm definitely down the hole, and it's a very complicated story. I just have this really bad feeling that it's like Casey Anthony 2.0. Well, here's the thing. She can cooperate, act like she's cooperating all you want. How long does it take to produce the baby? Five minutes? There's speculation hey, come over, here's that the, baby. the teenage mother, we'll just call her Maggie for all intents and purposes because that's what she's currently going by, is possibly pregnant <sighs> right now. Oh, my God. There have been like screenshots saved and shared from text conversations, Snapchats, Instagrams, photos that are all circulating on the internet. And of course, the local sheriff's office is warning against those social media spe speculations and the couch detectives. They're currently, I guess, chasing down about 300 different leads to try to locate this baby girl. She's so beautiful, Dylan. This is like the cutest baby. And I don't know why. It's really weighing on my heart this week. I haven't. You told me she's beautiful, and I know you're worried about her. And I haven't looked at the pictures because I just can't do it. I can't. Not right now. But 
really sad. And if you're a person who, of course, is interested in true crime, this is a good case to follow. Again, how long does it take to, hey, here's the baby, everything's fine. So that hasn't happened, and it's turned into a big thing. I'm, so I'm, I'm scared. I'm you'd, worried. You'd actually be surprised how many missing children, babies, children that are missing currently, that parents, mom, mom's boyfriend are seemingly involved, hiding information, and the baby allegedly is with a babysitter, and now they can't find these people, that they don't get charged and they don't get arrested. You're kidding There's me. There's another case. And I believe it may be in Ohio, but the baby is Amaya Robertson. Same kind of situation. Mom waits to file missing persons report on this baby. It allegedly went to a babysitter and has just been missing for like over a year now. Oh, no. Come on, man. Yeah. Come on. How are they not filing any charges? How are they not? I mean, I understand the law can be strangely worded sometimes and. There may not be any charges they can file on the state level, you know, just because of the situation. I mean, I'm, I guess, I'm guessing that's what happens, you know. There's no specific law that says if you don't can't produce your child, this hat, you know what I mean? Well, I believe there is something called Kaylee's Law that some states have adopted where parents can be charged if they don't report their child uh, missing within, you know, a certain period of time. Well, yeah. And North Carolina has enacted Kaylee's Law. And there's a few other states, Florida, I believe Alabama, some of the Midwestern states, Louisiana. But it's kind of a, I guess, a pick, you know, it's for states to decide. It's not like a federal law. Well, it should be a federal law. And so basically what it is, it makes a felony for parents or guardians to fail reporting missing children, especially when the parents know that the child could be in danger. And I just feel like this should be a federal law. I don't understand why this was just adopted by certain states. But. Yeah, you got that other crazy woman they just picked up on a $5 million bond. She can't produce her children. Oh, Lori Vallow? For the courts. And I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on out there. But we've said it before. Laws to protect children. Should be tough And women. Because women are victims of violent crime, typically. You know, you can you can hurt a woman and chi- or a child and just get out of jail like it's nothing. I don't get it. Yeah. They get, they're just happy to get you in jail for a couple months. The whole situation is very upsetting. So, again, <sighs> if you're a true crime fan, obviously you're listening about murders, you like true crime. I think this is a good case to follow. I'm just really curious to find out what happens. And I hope that we are able to get some resolution soon. And really I happy. hope that baby Evelyn is safe and she's... that she's okay, but I just have a really bad feeling about it. Being a true crime fan, I think we all probably know better, and that pisses me off. Well, Dylan, are you ready to get into this to today's discussion? Yeah, I'm mad now because you're talking about a little baby. Well, we're not straying very far because we're going to stay in Tennessee. Okay. For today's case. Okay, cool. Would you like to get started? Let's do it. David Earl Miller was born July 16, 1957, in Bowling Green, Ohio, which is a suburb of Toledo. His mother was 17 years old, and her name was Loretta Winkleman. And his father was some unknown guy she met at a bar. Oh, okay, what happened? The one-night stand resulted in her pregnancy. 
It is said that Loretta was rarely sober during the pregnancy. She also worked in a plastics plant. She would be diagnosed with brain damage after having been exposed to the toxic fumes in oh, this yeah. plastics factory. Oh, I cannot stand the smell of burning, you know, melted plastic. So that would be horrible place to work. Less than a year after David was born, his mother married a former Marine named John E. Miller. Now, Miller was allegedly also an alcoholic with violent tendencies. Oh, my gosh. The couple went on to have three more children together. One of those children was reportedly like mentally challenged. According to some social worker records from the time, Loretta was said to have never really cared about her children. She was not mother of the year by any stretch. No, it doesn't sound uh it doesn't sound like that was her priority in any any way. She spent much of her time hanging around divy bars, hooking up with men there, and was also physically abusive to David. Loretta is said to have beaten David with coat hangers, an umbrella, extension cords. I mean basically just whatever was lying around at the time. Yeah, that's horrible. Her husband, John, was not much different. He was called a sadistic brute who terrorized the entire family. However, he seemed to really delight in taking out the brunt of the cruelty on David. I mean, David was the child that was not biologically his. According to court records, Miller would slam David into walls, beat him with boards, and drag him around the house by his hair. God, somebody needs to beat his ass. This was not a household filled with love or nurture. And later, David would say he didn't remember ever being told he was loved by anyone in his childhood. Well, pretty damn sad. It's a really difficult way to live your life. Yeah, it sounds horrible. It was at an early age, when he was just five years old, that David recalls having his first sexual experience when a female cousin molested him. He was six years old when he tried to hang himself unsuccessfully, but that would be the first of several suicide attempts that he would make in childhood. By the age of 10 years old, David claims he was drinking, smoking pot, and huffing gasoline almost daily. Now, if that's true, could you imagine a poor little six-year-old in such a, a life and state to actually try to kill themselves? I mean, that's very abnormal for a, a little kid to even be thinking like that. Yeah, definitely. When he was 12 years old, David says he was molested by his grandfather's friend. The man had taken David to a cabin and then forced him to do unspeakable things while they were there. By 13, David was getting into trouble so much that he was sent to a state reform school. And of course, while he was in the boys' school, he was whipped, beaten, and raped by other boys. Damn, he can't win. While the counselors just turned a blind eye to this. Damn. But you hear a lot of stories coming out of these reform schools and these all-boys schools from that time period. Yeah. That they were just terrible. Well, yeah. I mean, even some of the uh, the some of the worst people in history, uh, Pee Wee Gaskins, Carl Panzram, Charles Manson, Charles Manson. That's where you know that's where you take these guys and almost they it's like they callous over and turn into something else because uh, they've all been brutalized themselves. Yeah, it's a really terrible situation, and if you research any of these boys' schools, I mean, the things that were allowed to go on there, well, I couldn't... there's no oversight, you've got guards, teachers, counselors who are horribly cruel to these children, but yeah. also allow 
a range of abuses to occur. Well, I mean, and you're never intervene. Yeah, you're locked in somewhere. You can't get out, and, and this stuff's happening to you. No one will help you. I mean, I could. I mean, damn, that's pretty damn crazy. And as I mentioned before, David was suicidal. He had tried to kill himself several times as a child, and his parents didn't seem to care or have any concern for this behavior. He also started having seizures when he was about 10, where he says he would like black out and lose contact with reality. Wow. And at no point was he ever taken to a doctor about these instances. His parents never tried to get him into any kind of counseling or therapy. Most people would be very concerned if their child was suicidal. Well, yeah, but I mean, these people sound like them. They shouldn't even be raising animals, let alone kids. His mother and stepfather finally divorced when David was about 10 to 11 years old. The sexual abuse only got worse after this. David says when he was a teenager, his mother turned to him for sexual gratification. Damn. His own mother forced him to have sex with her on at least three occasions, but it could have been more. Now, that's definitely enough to destroy any chances one might have of living a normal life. Yeah. You would need some intense therapy after having dealt with this kind of childhood trauma. Yeah, I mean, being a boy or a girl, you know, and your mother or father or, you know, either way around, I mean, yeah, that's violating so many... Of course, it's not like he had a real strong, warm relationship with his mom anyway, but that's just one more damn abuse piled on top of all this stuff this poor kid's been through. However, David's claims of incestuous relations have been greatly denied by other family members. How do they know? Right. Where was they at when he's been beat and and basically tortured all that time? In 1972, he was removed from the home by social services. In 1973, David attempted to rape his mother at knife point. Now, there's not a lot of information about this event, but he had spoken to several different prison psychiatrists and counselors. And so one of the doctors had basically recounted the story and had questioned him about it, and he flew into this horrible rage and started saying things like, oh, well, I guess she never told people what she did to me or how she started it. Oh, wow. So he kind of doubled back on her, and he has grown up. So he harbored this great deal of rage towards his mother, which we see this with so many murderers and serial killers. They hate their mothers. Yep. And And they take it out on women. Yep. Random women. A psychiatrist, as I mentioned, would later question him about that. And he just had this extremely explosive reaction. The psychiatrist said it was, like, frightening how mad he got when he was talking about his mother and what she did to him. Well, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) Damn. He spent time on the streets, relying on drugs and alcohol to escape from the problems he faced at home. In 1974, at the age of 17, David enlisted in the Marine Corps. He completed boot camp, but went AWOL when he was told he was not going to deploy overseas to fight in Vietnam. So he wanted to go. He wanted to go into combat, and this is the time when, you know, the war was dwindling and they were bringing troops home. Right. He got upset about that and left the Marine Corps. Yeah, he probably wanted to go on the front line. He probably didn't give a damn, you know what I mean? Because all the things he'd been through. He returned to Ohio 
And there he had a girlfriend. He eventually got her pregnant. But she ultimately decided she didn't want David in the picture, that she wanted to raise his daughter without him, went on to meet someone else. So he never really had a relationship with his child. He became a vagabond of sorts. He was using drugs, drinking, and just sort of living wherever he could, kind of floating from place to place. David says during this time, he would exchange sexual favors for a place to crash often. He tried a few times to lead a normal life, but he just couldn't manage to adult. Yeah, I'd say he's probably not a functional adult. I mean, he's been through a lot. He lived in Texas for a bit. He was holding down jobs that were kind of odd jobs, being a welder, a bartender, but he just couldn't ever quite manage to keep it together and straighten up and do right. He was a functioning drug addict, functioning alcoholic, but he just could not like show up to work on time, pay rent, all the things that, you know, the rest of us try to do. Well, I'd say having uh, um, relationships with people, working, personal, just, you know, semi, you know, just to be semi, enough to be semi-functional with your landlord, things like that. He's probably not very good at that. Because as a child, he didn't learn how to, you know, connect normally with people. In 1980, he was hitchhiking on I-75 through East Tennessee when he was picked up by the Reverend Benjamin Calvin Thomas, who was a principal at Sam E. Hill Elementary School and pastor of the Thorn Grove Baptist Church. Initially, the two had a sexual relationship. What the hell? But that develops more into a father-son type of thing. Thomas is going to allow Miller to stay at his house and work as a handyman. Now, the pastor had hoped he could redeem him, show him that somebody cared about him, and maybe help David turn his life around. He thought if David just had a stable home environment, someone who could be a support system for him, that David could get a job, start working, save some money, get out on his own. It seems like this man really did want to help this guy. Right, but I've got to say, I bet he was his handyman. Hey, give me a handy, man. Well, mm, actually, nobody. they both have said that once David moved into the house, that the sexual relationship stopped. So it evolved into more of a, a strong friendship. And Thomas says he really felt like he treated David like a son when David was living in the house. During this time, they kind of developed a routine. David got a job. Thomas would drop David off near downtown Knoxville on his way to work at the school. David would walk around downtown. Sometimes he would donate blood for cash, or he would go work at the bus station cafeteria where he bussed tables, worked in the kitchen, washed dishes. But David would spend his money as fast as he earned it in pool halls, honky tonks, and dive bars. So it's, he's trying to kind of normalize and a little bit, I guess. And um, but he's still, it's just not doing a good job of it. Right. Well, here's the part where he just can't seem to adult. Like most people would work, save their money, have a goal in mind, want to do better. Upgrade. Exactly. But this guy, as soon as he gets paid, gets a little cash in hand. He's immediately at the bar buying drinks, buying drugs. Okay. Well, that sounds like a fun time, I guess. <laughs> he developed a reputation in downtown Knoxville's CD bar scene very quickly. He was a violent drunk, always looking for a fight, 
people started to know his name. When they saw him come, and they were like, oh, God, not this guy. That's going to be something with it's this guy. It's rumored that he one time fought an entire house band in a brawl. Oh, wow. Damn. Legendary status. These guys don't give fuck. <laughs> in 1980, he was accused of rape two different times. Okay, well, that's not good. In both cases, the women reported the rapes, but then refused to testify in court because they were afraid of him. So his uh, violence and rage, I guess they got an up-close look at it, and they, they didn't want to be anywhere around him again, right? I mean, let's call it what it is. David is a psychopath misfit. Yes. Roaming the streets. Yes, he's, he's in training, if you will. I mean, he's trying to find an outlet for this rage and antisocial, can't have uh, interpersonal relationships. And seems to have a real problem with women. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a damn checklist and he's getting every one of them. In May of 1981, David meets Lee Standifer at the library in downtown Knoxville. So let's talk a moment about Lee Standifer. She was born May 22nd, 1957 in Charleston, West Virginia. Now, when she was born, Lee was diagnosed with diffused brain damage, which gave her what they called like mild retardation at the time and some cognitive disabilities. She spent most of her school years in Colorado. Lee was active in 4-H and competed in early versions of the Special Olympics. Oh, okay. For swimming, winning gold medals. Her mother said Lee was good at certain things like reading, having conversations. She was very social. But other things were just really challenging for her. She loved reading. She would go to the library quite often. Her issues were more like comprehension-based, and she was childlike. Ah, okay. She was very naive, very trusting. She didn't understand the dangers in the world. She didn't see bad in people. Right. She was like a kid. So it just comes down to, it wasn't like... Like, you see these little kids who... They don't know a stranger. They'll just come up to you, start talking. They'll hug you. Right. They're very sweet, very loving. Yeah. And this was her. Lee was outgoing. She was very bubbly and confident. Her mother said despite the fact that she did have some disabilities, she wasn't going to let that stand in her way. And she was always really confident. She would say that she, you know, didn't really compare herself to other people. Wow, that's she awesome. Just, she was like, I know I'm special and I'm my own person and everyone's not the same. Now she sounds like she's fun to be around, you know, like a, a cool person to hang, hang out with. It was during her senior year of high school that her family moved to Tennessee. After graduating, Lee didn't go to college. She didn't drive. I mean, her options at this time were fairly limited. You've got to think about this is back in the early 80s. Right. Didn't have a lot of the programs designed to help folks who were disabled. Well, I mean, they were still just like, well, they're, they're a little bit retarded. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, that we've evolved quite a bit past that now, right? Lee didn't want to live at home. She wanted to be independent. She's a young woman. Her sister Audrey was attending the University of Tennessee and was renting a house with some roommates, kind of close to the college campus, and she invited Lee to move in with them. This tickled Lee. She loved this idea. She gets to move into this house, live with five or six female roommates who are college girls. They're around her age. You know, I'm sure they were staying up late at night, talking, giggling, probably doing each other's hair. Well, she's know, getting a, just, she's, It's that experience. Yeah, getting of, to feel uh, um, independent. And like you're part of something. And like you're growing up, 
you know, like what's next for us, you know, that's awesome. I didn't do any of that. And this situation was going great until the girls eventually had to move out of the house. And when they were dispersing and all kind of moving on to their different roommate situations or housing situations, Lee still really wanted to be on her own. She didn't want to go back to living under her parents' roof. Well, she got a taste of that. Her parents helped her find a place to live. And like I said, at that time, it was really difficult. They didn't have a lot of group homes or housing situations for people who, you know, adults with special needs or disabled adults. But they eventually helped her move into the YWCA. She got a job. She was working at a chicken packaging plant and had learned to navigate the city bus routes on her own. At her job, Lee was a great employee. Everybody liked her. She was never late, never called into work, and did well with her job. And her mom said in an interview that this job, this chicken chicken packaging plant, was not, you know, ideal for a lot of people. Like, really kind of boring, repetitive work. But it didn't bother Lee at all. She was great at it and really enjoyed it. Well, I mean, uh, you know, everybody's different, no matter if you have disability or not. And some people, that stuff works for them. Lee told her mother that she'd met this man at the library who'd asked her on a date. Now, Lee had never been on a date before. So as you can imagine, she was really excited. Plus, this guy, David, was not a bad looking guy back then. He was actually quite handsome. Really? On May 20th, she called her mother about 5.30 p.m. She called her mother every day and checked in. She left the Y about 7 o'clock with a friend, and as she walked out onto the street, David Miller was waiting for her. The pair walked to a place called the Hideaway Lounge, Ooh. where he often, you know, frequented. He, this was his bar. Then the two went to the library. He checked out a book. Later, investigators would say it had these really graphic descriptions of murder during sex. Oh, God. In the book. Well, well, damn, what's that book called? And that, I guess, once they start digging into David's background, that he had what they called like an unnatural interest in sex. Oh, damn. He was kind of a pervert. Oh, it's like you. What? (laughs) (laughs) Don't kink shame me. (laughs) They went to the bus station, (laughs) caught a taxi to Thomas's house on Wise Hills Road around 9.30 p.m. So they're having like a, you know, just a kind of a casual date. So she's got her own place. She's working. She's handling it. This girl's adulting better than some people I know. And so, and they get to go back to her place. She's had a nice little date. She's having fun with this handsome guy. I guess she's over the moon right now, Well, they go back to his place. Oh, his place. Belonging to the preacher man. I'm sorry. No, disregard everything I just said besides her killing it. She's great at adulting. She's a good person. The pastor was at a Wednesday night prayer meeting and wouldn't be back until, you know, fairly late. And David knew they would have the house to themselves. When Thomas, the pastor, returns home from his prayer meeting, he drove into the basement garage and noticed that the concrete floor was wet. He got out of the car and saw David Miller coming down the stairs wearing jeans and no shirt. Of course, Thomas asks, why is the floor wet? And David says he hosed it down because it was dirty. When the two get upstairs, the kitchen floor is also wet. 
Two streams of blood lead from the kitchen into the dining room and to the living room area of the home. Oh, God. Of course, Thomas is asking, like, what happened? And David explains that he had gotten into a bar fight, which caused him to have a bloody nose. The pastor gets really upset, believing that the carpet is ruined. He informs David that the situation is no longer working out. You're not doing right. You're supposed to be working, trying to you know, adult, save money, get your own place, be responsible, and all you do is go out to bars, drink, do drugs, party, and now you're, like, bringing it back to my house. You're disrespecting my home. Right. You're not taking care of things. So they just kind of have this big blowout, and he tells David, you know, it's time for you to move on. The next morning, Thomas drops David off near I-40 with $25 in cash, and David tells him that he's going to hitchhike to Houston, Texas. So that's the last straw for the preacher. He tried. I'm sure that's been building for all this time because David's just kicking around doing whatever. And uh, yeah, so he's had enough. And David seems to be like, uh, yeah, okay, cool, I'm out of here. Not even arguing about it. All right. By 6.30 p.m., Thomas returns home. And as he's driving in, now remember he came home late at night. So it was dark the night before. But when he returns home by 6.30, you know, it's May, so it's not going to get dark until later. He sees this blue t-shirt hanging from a dogwood tree branch in his backyard. Well, that's weird. Yeah. Well, he thinks so, too. So he gets out of the car, he walks over to the tree, and while he's there trying to figure out why somebody hung a t-shirt in a tree, he sees the nude body of a young woman lying about 100 feet from his house. And it's lying in this sort of unkept thicket of tall grass that hasn't really been cut. Oh, my God. On the side of the yard, like not a place that they really hang out or anything. Right. So it's obvious that somebody's tried to kind of hide her there. Well, mildly, you know, barely hide her, but just, you know, a little bit. She has a rope wrapped around her face, neck, kind of around her head and hands, and she's covered in dry blood. Frantic, he runs inside and calls the police. Yeah, that would mess you up if you found a dead body just right there outside your house. Investigators show up, determined that the rope had likely been used to drag the woman's body across the yard. Her jacket, shoes, and underwear are found about 50 feet from her body in the yard, covered in blood. Inside, they find blood on the walls, like blood spatter, and it's clear that in some places, it's, there's been an attempt to clean it up. Right. They find a fire poker in the living room. It's just covered in blood. There's a hammer found outside near the body, also covered in blood. An autopsy revealed a horrific murder. Lee had been severely beaten and had multiple skull fractures. She was stabbed in the neck, the jawbone. She had multiple stab wounds in the chest area, the back, the stomach. The medical examiner said the wounds were so deep and forceful that someone had to take this hammer and likely drive like a Bowie knife. What the hell? Possibly this fire poker into the body. Like they're pounding it in there with another object. To produce the kind of stab wounds that she had. They were big. They were very, very deep and so forceful that it would take I mean, you'd have to be like Andre the Giant or something to be able to stab and wound and puncture this body right. the way it had been. Okay, that's 
freaking crazy. Her body was badly bruised and beaten. Before she had died, they could tell, like, before she'd been killed, she'd been beaten severely and with hands. Like, all, all along her thighs and legs, she had big bruise marks that looked like someone had punched. So like, this with is a fist. just unfettered rage. Multiple objects, knife, poker, fist, oh, you know, all kinds of, you know, wounds. I mean, it's just, this doesn't happen quickly. This is extended, right? I yes. mean, it's bashed, beat. I mean, just um, this is horrible. Yes. One of the detectives in an interview later would say that this was like the worst crime scene he'd ever seen. Well, yeah, I mean, she just, not that being killed. Viciously. Is that, but yeah, she suffered. I mean, this was extended and um, it was just, uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of it was post-mortem. The guy just kept on and on. You know what I mean? Damn. Yeah. I mean, that's just a, a maniacal, really. I mean, just totally uncontrolled, sounds like. The medical examiner also found sperm inside of her. Okay. So. But they don't know if this was a consensual. If they'd had consensual sex. sex and then all this other stuff happened. Yeah, they don't. They couldn't really determine, and because she was so badly attacked, whether she'd been raped or if they'd had consensual sex at some point. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't even know if, that, if it matters for that poor girl at that point. You know what I mean? David is apprehended in Columbus, Ohio on May 29th, 1998. So just within a week of this murder. After he had tried to pass a counterfeit bill in a bar. So he's just off doing his same shitbird moves somewhere else. That's his, his, his way of getting out of there. And because he was arrested on trying to pass this counterfeit money, the Secret Service actually comes to arrest him. Yep. And while they have him in custody, they soon realize he is wanted in Tennessee for murder. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize the Secret Service's first job was uh, about the currency and tracking counterfeit and stuff like that. Once he's in custody, during a police interview, David says he was high on LSD and drunk on the evening of the date. At first, he says he can't remember anything. He doesn't remember anything that happened. He eventually tells them that they went on the date. He remembered going to the bar. He remembered going home. He said he wasn't sure if they'd gone to the library. He couldn't remember. That he knew when they were going back to the house in the taxi that he was kind of feeling sick. That Lee wanted to go inside and talk. So they sat down in the living room, kind of near the fireplace. Lee was talking his ear off, kind of getting on his nerves. She had asked him like what his plans were for the future. He told her that he was going to leave and go back to Texas. She became upset. I mean, you have to remember, she's got like a childlike mind. Right. She just met this guy. She really likes him. So I'm sure that when he tells her, well, I'm going to leave soon, she was like, oh, you know, but, but I like you and don't leave. Well, yeah, she's already thinking like this could be my boyfriend. Yes. Maybe. She's begging him not to go and grabs his arm. When she does this, David says he snaps, goes into this blind rage. And that he hit her, and then he doesn't remember what happens next. Yeah. But the next thing he did remember was dragging her body outside. Oh, wow. He also denied having sex with her. So in all that blackout period for him, he's on autopilot. 
He goes and gets multiple objects, a fire poker, knife, possibly a hammer, and brutalizes this poor girl, beats her for extended periods of time. I mean, this attack it didn't happen quickly. And, and gets rope, and, you know, assumes and ties her up to where he can get her moving, and does all this in this blind rage. Allegedly. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah I'm going to call bullshit on that. I'm sorry, but continue. In March 1982, he was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to die by electric chair. But in 1984, the state overturned the decision on the sentencing because the prosecutor had mentioned those previous rape arrests during his trial, but had not actually been convicted. So they were just uh, charges, rape charges. Okay. And so the state determined that that, I guess, was not legal or not fair didn't give him a fair trial yeah okay so they did they um they throw out the whole conviction no they didn't throw out the whole conviction they kept the first degree murder charge but they knew they were going to have to have another trial for like resentencing purposes okay however in february of 1987 another jury decided his fate would be to die in the electric chair yeah all they got to do is um see the pictures of this poor girl and listen to, you know, a couple of experts or state medical examiners tell everything that you just described. I would sentence that guy to damn death too, wouldn't you? After exhausting appeals, Miller was finally executed 37 years after killing Lee Standifer. He was the longest serving inmate on Tennessee's death row. 37 years. Yeah. Okay. This was in 2018 that he was executed. He was 61 years old. He selected a meal of fried chicken, mashed potatoes, biscuits, and coffee for his final meal. Now, when he was asked what his final words were, he said something that was kind of unintelligible, and they asked him to repeat himself, and he said, beats being on death row. Yeah, he's already lived his life. I mean, what? yeah, a lot of it in jail, right? But um, he's, yeah. already, he's good. Lee Standifer's mother... Her name is Helen, and she currently lives in Arizona. She did not come back for the execution. Yeah. She said she didn't want to witness that, and nothing was going to bring back her daughter. This pain and suffering that she felt was never going to go away. Oh my God. And that she really just didn't feel like this was going to bring any closure. She just didn't want to be part of it. Well, it's been almost 40 years since her daughter had been killed. Yes. I mean, I, mean I, I, I can't speak on what that poor woman feels. But yeah, that's some people want to see it. Some it doesn't matter if it's a hundred years later. Some people want to watch that person die. And if it was my kid or something, I feel like I may be that type of person. What do you think? Would you? I, I can't. You never know how you're going to deal or feel with all that. Yeah, I think if it was someone very close to me, my husband. If it was you, if it was one of our children. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't care when it happened. I would need to see that. And this case was, I mean, just really horrific but the execution was very controversial tennessee went for like a decade without executing anyone so kind of like what california's done recently with the governor there he's put it all on hold he's basically like while i'm governor there will be no execution yeah there was like a 10-year period where they weren't really executing people in tennessee but then they started up again within a short period of time i think they executed like three people like in the last few years. Okay. Which is kind of, you know, it's a pretty good that, chunk of people. Well, that's what I don't get about the death. That's the part of the death penalty I don't get. But um, the, the why it takes so long. But there was a lot of controversy 
you know, many groups, religious groups, anti-death groups were advocating for David Miller, discussing his childhood, that he obviously had some mental illness, he had a lot of trauma, and that he should be spared dying. But the governor was like, nope, not going to intervene. That's tough on the, just because, yeah, you described not even a dog shouldn't be treated the way he was treated growing up, right? Well, I just think you have to look at the sum of all the parts. And, but, you know, I have mixed feelings about the death penalty. I mean, if we're going to get into it, you know, sometimes I, I just don't know. The Innocence Project, I mean, that's proven that there are a lot of people sitting on death row that are innocent. A lot of people have been killed, and then later you find out that they, DNA testing, whatever, they weren't even the guilty party. Yes. However, in certain cases like this, where you know without a shadow of a doubt this guy is the killer, he's admitting to it, there's no shaggy-haired man, there's no one-armed man. I mean, we know for sure he did this. Right. Therefore, you have to pay something back to society for that. Like, her life means something. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. The way you're describing it is exactly how I feel about the death penalty. A lot of people ended up on death row back in the day. We we all know, or a lot of us realize, eyewitness testimony. And we realize that that's very, uh, you can't count on that. Just because of the way the human brain works. People sometimes put their own prejudices in there and all this stuff. And you get a prosecutor who's over to, you know, really zealous about getting this done. And so, yes, an innocent person being killed on that, you know, by in any state on their death row is the only qualm I have about it, honestly. But if you get to the modern day and people are beyond a shadow of a doubt, all the forensic sciences, all the th- DNA, all these things that can prove. A hundred percent that you're the one. There still needs to be a vetting process. There still needs to be okay. Is uh, you know double check everything. But I think that shit needs to be streamlined down six months. Okay, and needs to like fast line, fast track these people in these certain sets of circumstances. Well, no one should sit on death row for almost forty fucking years. No, no, because what price did you pay? What price did you pay? You was a, a living this. You were shitty at adulting. You had a horrible childhood. Yeah, I know you did. But guess what? Other people have horrible childhoods too. And that doesn't give you a right to kill someone. Yeah, he would have killed that. again. Well, that's the thing. He His behavior escalated. I mean, he went from just doing, you know, petty things, getting in a fight. Just being doing drugs, socially an antisocial person who doesn't relate well with others. To assaulting women. To alleged, uh, alleged rape charges. Multiple. I mean, yeah. He was, he was, he was, he it's his it. textbook. Right. He was practicing all the antisocial behaviors, the rage towards his, he felt towards his mother, all the crazy, horrible shit that did happen to him growing up in his de- developmental years. And he would, he would have killed again. And that poor girl, that poor woman, he killed her for no, I mean, just absolutely no reason. I'm thinking my theory, I don't know if you can trust exactly what he said, even though. I think they were having consensual sex, and I think it could have been her, what, her first time, right? Yeah. If this is her first boyfriend. This is her first date. Her first date. And she's, you know, grown. 
and uh, that something happened or she said something or said no or did something he didn't like and then you know or they're just having normal consensual sex in his brain all the shit that happened all the stuff with his mom and all that rape and abuse somehow spilled over and he flew in i don't know who knows i'm just speculating in my own well mind. there have been others who theorize a similar right scenario or she's like no this is too i'm not ready for all this or i don't want to do this or you want to get her to do something crazy or adventurous and she at some point just turned him you know no and then he just flew up but that unfettered rage and he would have done that again i agree he would have done he was a, he was a serial killer who didn't know how to what how to go about it you yes. know what i mean it's like he didn't have because they're they typically they're typically intelligent right to set up their whole thing the hunting and the you know, all that stuff they get into, I think he lacked some mental capacity to take it to the next level. Yeah, he wasn't calculating. Right. He didn't premeditate this likely. Right. Yes, exactly. But if he had had those tools to go along with it, he had everything else in the bag. He was just missing on some of the um, um, intellectual capacity and the calculation. And he would have been a full-blown serial killer. Right, and to your point, you know, you brought up, okay, so he did have this terribly traumatic childhood. And that was horrible. Was, I was, he was abused, he was molested. I mean, it sounds like his childhood was a fucking nightmare. I like wanted to cry when you were describing this little boy being done like this. No, it was hard to read through some of the yeah. information that's out there about what he endured as a yeah, child. Yeah, that's horrible. It's a really terrible situation. But that is not an excuse to take a life. It's almost, in my book, you were a victim of multiple people in ways that a lot of us can't even imagine. A victim over and over and over again in your life. Why would you make someone else a victim? You know, it's, it's like, I never understood that, you know, how the bully will be. Well, I bully people because, you know, my dad beats me when I get home. Or, you know, he has some hidden thing that, you know, um, fucks up his mind or whatever. But you're going to, you know, if you know how it feels, why would you turn around and do that to someone else? The human brain is an interesting study, Dylan. <sighs> it is, and we'll figure it out about episode 500. And we'll never understand <laughs> uh, certain behaviors. No, but that's just horrible. I mean, it's just uh, the whole situation. It's just like things building on top of the fact that he had this horrible childhood. He's suicidal. Then he starts using drugs, which are just going to aggravate the current problem. Well, they're just going to, uh, you know. Um... And we see this a lot with folks who have mental illness depression, anxiety, childhood trauma, they don't properly treat it. They instead turn to drugs and alcohol. Well, you're just masking it. You're numbing escape. it. Yeah, it's like putting a Band-Aid on it temporarily. Right. But that's never going to be a good situation. Coupled with all the other things he has going on, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of no surprise he ended up where he did. But these were choices he made. A lot of people have fucked up lives bad childhoods, horrific things happen to them, but they don't brutally, viciously just, man. Destroy. He destroyed I mean, that. The, what, I, 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 it's horrific what he did. Like, I, I can't even, you know, think of another word to use. No, it's uh, uh, it's horrendous. Yes. No, but it's just horrible. He just literally destroyed that poor, poor girl. I and mean, the fact and, that she oh, was mentally handicapped. She was slower. You know, one of the de- detectives stated that he felt like Miller picked this girl because right. of that, knew that he could easily overpower her. 
and felt that maybe he kind of had planned to do something like this, or at least planned to take advantage of her. Yes, yeah, so, because he wasn't um, he wasn't stupid, and he'd been on the street, and he'd done all this hustling, and he he was street smart, I would think. And I'm going to guess I thought the same thing when he met her. He was like, I can manipulate this girl and, and get her to do some things. Maybe if it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to beat her with a, you know, I'm going to kill her. I think he definitely thought he could get something from her, manipulate her right. when he first met her instantly. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be probably what happened. But. Oh, God. So that's been the story of David Earl Miller. And of course, this took place in Knoxville, Tennessee, so not far from here in the early 80s. Oh, I'm going to need a palate cleanser after that. You can go watch one of your reality shows. I'm about to watch Below Deck. Yeah, that's your new obsession. Oh, my God. That was horrible. That was rough. I'm going to have to dim. All right. Thank you for digging that story up. But, um, yeah. Whew. Okay. I don't even know how to end this. Wrap, help me wrap this thing up, baby. Well, we're just plugging along here. The month of February is going to be over pretty soon. And, of course, it's a short month. We're heading into March. Hey. have some cool cases coming your way. Maybe some cases you haven't heard before. I've got a really cool old case. You know, nice. I love those old cases. Nice. Got a story out of New England. Venturing huh. up the coast a bit. Does it involve clams? Maybe. Okay. Some steamers. Steamers? Is that what they call them? Steamers. Okay. <laughs> we got a lot coming your way. And of course, we have our live show coming up in May. We're excited about that. It's going to take place in Asheville, North Carolina at Fleetwoods. We do have an event on our Facebook page with a link where you can get tickets. And we encourage folks to become patrons. Sign up on Patreon. You can join for as low as a dollar a month, support the podcast, and have access to a lot of cool content, extra bonus episodes. We will often put out feelers with our patrons and ask them, hey, we do a little poll. What would you like us to talk about? And let you guys vote and choose a topic and we cover it. Sometimes we talk about true crime, but we often stray into other interesting avenues. Yeah, we let our patrons choose. And there's just one thing I want to mention. We're obviously everywhere, you know, on all the social medias and whatnot and ways to reach us and see us. But I want to thank all the people subscribing to us on YouTube, which yes. is a very kind of a not mentioned as often in podcast format. But uh, I'd like to thank everybody because that's uh, plugging right along. And it seems that we have quite a few people that like to uh, get our content that way. And I want to thank them. Yeah. And of course, you can access the podcast just about anywhere. You can. YouTube, we're on Apple Podcasts, Google, CastBox, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Spotify. Spotify. You can also go to our website, which is www.mountainmurderspodcast.com. We have a website, Dylan. You made it. We're fancy. I know. But we have a playlist yeah. on the website where you can listen to all the episodes right there. Boom. Directly from the website. Check it out, y'all. <laughs> but thanks to everybody, and we love you. Have a great week.